You're listening to audio from Northway Church. For more information about Northway and additional resources, please visit northwaychurch.com. Well, good morning, Northway family. Good to see you. Glad you're with us this Sunday. If I haven't had the chance to meet you, my name is Shay Sumlin, one of the pastors here. And as you can tell by the bumper video here, we are launching into a brand new series this week. We're pausing on Romans. We'll jump back in Romans here this fall, but for the summer, we are going to dive into the book of Judges. Now, how many of you are at least somewhat familiar with or have at least read portions of the book of Judges? Anybody out there? Okay. So you know, you are cheering because you're dark, dark people right now. <laughs> if you like tragedies, if you, if you like the Godfather, if you're into Breaking Bad, if, uh, if, you are, um, if you're into Cruel Summer right now, if you're into the Avengers, or if you're a middle school boy, then you love... You are very fascinated by the book of Judges. For the rest of us, this is a sobering, dark, dark story. Um, and, and honestly, when it comes to stories that are dark and, and, and like have this pattern of human descent into despair and even evil, um, there's something about those stories that we're just drawn into. Uh, if you go to the top shows on Netflix right now, the top shows on Apple right now, whatever it may be, they are mostly crime. They are mostly uh, documentaries or movies about darkness and uh, the human brokenness and despair. And I think the reason we're drawn in is because I think, honestly, there's some shared experience there. We're fascinated by what it is we are capable of doing as humans and the brokenness that we find ourselves in and I think there's something built within us that, that longs for true justice to come, that longs for true redemption to come, that wants some aspect of deliverance, even in the midst of this darkness. And I think in that reason and more is what's going to compel us, even as we look at judges, to see some aspect of our own humanity in this story and our need for rescue. Now, Judges represents a very dark period in Israel's history where you are going to see in the book of Judges an entire generation of God's people walk away from serving the Lord in order in their own perception to do what is right in their own mind. They're going to turn away from the Lord because they feel this path is better. This path seems more compelling to them. And it is a dark and tragic story of a really unfaithful people who are in need of constant rescuing, which is like us. I mean, that's, that's us in a dark day longing for rescuing. And yet what you're gonna see in Judges is that this, this book is also filled with hope. It's filled with the hope of a faithful God who never gives up on his people who never gives up on his promises to bring about that rescue, no matter how far in their descent they may fall. And I think in this, this sense, this book is gonna be incredibly relevant for us in this day. And my prayer is that as we spend some time this summer zeroing in on what will really be six portraits. We're not gonna do a typical expositional cover to cover of the book study. We're gonna do more of a narrative study here this summer um, looking at six specific judges within this story who are these flawed deliverers that God uses. And I think as we study this, we, um, my prayer is, is that we'll be drawn closer to the true and perfect deliverer, who is Jesus Christ, sent 
for us by our faithful God and his rescuing grace. So that in mind, turn to Judges 1. As we, uh, as we look here in our Old Testament, Judges 1 begins, verse 1 begins with the death of Joshua. And, and therein lies some context for us. We're going to need to unpack because Judges roughly covers about three centuries worth of Israel's history, beginning with the death of Joshua, and then will lead towards the anointing of King David as David as the new king of Israel. And, and, and that leaves some, for many of us, some confusion going, okay, well, what is that? Who are those people? Where does this take place? So let me just give you a little brief intro that catches us up from Genesis 1-1 to Judges. In the book of Genesis, first book in the Bible, begins with God, a singular, all-powerful, almighty God who creates everything that we can see and even though we can't see today. And he creates this perfect world, this perfect creation um, in which he then creates humanity, both male and female, to to be in this creation and to serve as his vice regents, stewarding this creation made in his image in order to display his glory. And out of his love and benevolence, he creates all of this for his glory and for our good. And yet, no sooner are we introduced to this creation narrative in Genesis, we see everything go sideways when this male and female that he creates are lured into rejection of the truth of God in exchange for a lie. And they give way to God the creator and begin worshiping the creation as their God and instantly sin ensues and judgment follows. And for the first time in this creation account, something something tragically goes wrong and now humanity's cursed. We are now alienated from God for the very first time. even the earth itself, there's in, and not only enmity between us and God, there's enmity between us and one another, and there's enmity between the creation and us, where everything's now hostile, yet God in his mercy takes the man and woman and takes them outside of the garden, because now death is upon them, and to stay in the garden and eat from the tree of life would be cruel, to stay in these bodies for eternity. So God in his mercy sets them outside the garden, and still gives them the command and the commission to be vice regents of his, although now flawed and broken, but to still display his image uh, upon the earth and to subdue the earth and to multiply and to make this a representation of God's kingdom. And so this is what God has laid forth. And yet what happens is this humanity, because we are infected with sin as the first man and the first woman begin to multiply and the earth begins to fill up with humanity, Everything is contaminated by sin to the point that God looks down upon the earth and sees that the entire earth is in rebellion to him. The entire earth is walking in wickedness. And so God once again judges the earth, this time through a flood. And yet in his mercy, just as he did with Adam and Eve, he spares one individual in his family to restart this thing, Noah. And as they begin to multiply and as the earth begins to fill back up again, This now one new humanity once again begins to rebel against God by building a tower that they can reach the heavens. And God, knowing that unless he intervenes, they're going to ruin themselves, he steps in and he disperses them by confusing their languages. And you see the birth of nations and ethnicities and different uh, 
different tongues and different speech that is set across the earth. So now we're scattered and separated and now cannot unify as easily in our rebellion towards God as one humanity. And as this happens, God in his mercy once again pulls one person out and says, I'm gonna start something new here. Now, back in the day when Adam and Eve sinned and were judged, God made a promise to them, even though everything has gone corrupt and sideways. I'm gonna send forth through your seed, Eve, one day a deliverer who will come and will come and will make all that is wrong and make it right. And what you see is the unveiling of the story as God pulls each new humanity out. He's unveiling the layers of his plan to send this deliverer. And so he pulls one person out from the Ur of the Chaldeans, modern day Iraq, this wicked idol worshiper and pulls him out and says, I'm going to start a new nation through you, a new people group through you in which I'm gonna pour out my blessing. And he takes an old man and an old woman who are barren, they cannot have kids. And God says, I'm gonna do a miracle. And I'm not just gonna only bring forth one kid, I'm gonna bring forth a whole sea of descendants through your line that are gonna out. And you can't even count the stars or the sand on the seashore to know how many descendants you're gonna have. And I'm gonna bring you into a new land and I'm gonna bless the inhabitants of the earth through you. And one of your descendants of all those myriad, one of them, is gonna be this deliverer that I promised the very first male and female on this earth who will come. And so God does this with Abraham. And through Abraham begets Isaac. Isaac uh, keeps moving forward to Jacob. Jacob has his many sons and then tragedy sets in again. All these brothers decide to turn on one brother named Joseph and they sell him off into slavery where he's shipped down to Egypt and it becomes a slave. And yet in God's mercy, what man meant for evil, God is gonna redeem for good. And he allows Joseph to be exalted, raised in the court of Pharaoh himself to become his own prince over the land. And then a famine strikes. And remember all that family that had betrayed Joseph, they come into Egypt seeking some sort of refuge only to encounter the son that they betrayed. And yet this son that they handed over for death is gonna be the one that's gonna give them life. Great picture of Jesus coming forth. But Joseph brings his family back in. Reconciliation takes place. 70 family members come into Egypt and are given great, great peace and prosperity until eventually, as they begin to multiply, a new Pharaoh arises who didn't know Joseph, didn't know favor upon this family and now sees this multiplying people that went from 70 to about 3 million over the course of 430 years. And this Pharaoh enslaves them and just tortures them through back-breaking labor. All the while wondering, is God's promise still on the table? Are we gonna make it into that land? Is there a deliverer that will one day come? And God once again raises up one other individual who is drawn out of the water. Literally, his name is Moshe, which means to be drawn out, Moses. And he's raised up there in Egypt. And God uses him to now confront Pharaoh and says, you're gonna let my people go. 430 years is long enough. I promised them land. I promised them the seed that would come and the blessing from it. I'm gonna fulfill my promises. And Pharaoh says no. 10 times to that last plague where the angel of death comes. He's going to take the firstborn of everyone in Israel or everyone in Egypt, unless 
you were to take a sacrificial lamb in your place and take its blood and put it on the doorframe of your house and take its covering. And if that's the case, then the angel of death will pass over you. And sure enough, every Israelite puts their trust in the blood of the lamb. Their firstborn are spared. And finally, Pharaoh relents and the people are released to go. God is finally going to inaugurate his plan that he promised Abraham to bring them into a new land so they can worship him alone. And so they head out. But then sin enters the camp again, grumbling and complaining, shortcuts on God. God judges the whole generation, says, you're not going into the land. I'm going to take another generation. And they wait until they all die out. Only two people remain at the very end who are going to go into the land who experienced the parting of the Red Sea. That is Joshua and Caleb. And Joshua leads the charge. And this sets up kind of the context for Judges because Joshua precedes Judges and Joshua takes them into the land and he has given explicit commands by God to go into that land and completely take out all the idol-worshiping inhabitants who were there. This was the land promised by God to Abraham. Now it's come due. And they are going in. And when he says you're gonna go in and defeat all these other people that are there, you're not going to do so by your own strength. Just like I got my people out of Egypt by my, by my strength, I'm going to deliver this land to you by my strength. You just be obedient to me and I'll take care of it. But the people go in. And what you need to know, and you've heard this before, but coming out of 430 years of slavery in Egypt, it was real easy for God to get the people out of Egypt. It was not so easy to get Egypt out of the people. And you have 430 years of sitting under and intermingling with pagan worship. God's dealings with Abraham, they seem like yesteryears, long forgotten. And out of all those who entered, Joshua and Caleb, they're the only ones left. And they're taking a prized piece of land that to this day is still a prized piece of land because it's the one piece of land that intersects three continents, Asia, Africa, and Europe all intersect in this promised land called Israel today. And they're gonna go in and this land is filled with multiple nation states all within this territory that all are part of the fertility cults. They worship pagan gods, gods such as Baal, gods such as El, Mat, Us, Asherah, Astarte, all these pagan gods and deities that were worshiped because they believed that if they Worship them, they would bless the land and the humanity with fertility. And the way that they worshiped was through sexual intercourse and it was through human child sacrifice. If they just engaged in illicit sexual practices, that would incite the fertility upon the land. And if they engaged by handing over their children to, to the altar to be sacrificed, then the gods would bless the fertility of the humanity. And this is how they worshiped, and this is how they practiced when they were in there. And God told Moses and subsequently Joshua back in Exodus 23, 33, he said, when you go into this land, they can't live in this land with you because they will make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare to you. And so God knew that if they didn't fully obey him and drive out the inhabitants 
then they would begin assimilating with them. They would begin adopting their beliefs. They would begin adopting their practices. And God hadn't saved them for that. God had saved them to be whole, to be holy, to be set apart from all the nations, to worship the one and the true living creator God, Yahweh Almighty. And so that is the context that we find ourselves heading into Judges. Joshua has now died. The former generation that was with Joshua has now died. And the people haven't quite yet finished the work of driving out the inhabitants. The conquest started well. They have settled in, but they have not fully driven them out. And so the question that judges will pose is, how will the next generation respond? Will they pick up the baton? Will they finish the work that Joshua started in obedience to God and drive out the idolatry? so they can worship God alone. And as we will see in this series, they did not do that. And in fact, what I want you to see today in just a brief little overview here is that there are three primary problems in the first two chapters that we're gonna see that plague the people of Israel in the book of Judges that leads to a repeated cycle of a downward descent into chaos. And what I think you're going to find is that what I believe is that these same three issues that plague Israel and judges are the same three issues that are plaguing us as a culture today. And see if you don't see this in here. And I think without repentance and renewal and revival, we are doomed to repeat the past of even what we see in the book of Judges. Here's the first problem you're going to see in Judges 1 and 2 of what Israel was facing, and that was disobedience. Disobedience is made clear in chapters one and two. Just look at chapter one, verses 27 and following. Remember, every tribe, after Joshua's conquest, every tribe, all 12 tribes of Israel, were supposed to finish the work, finish driving out the inhabitants. But look at verse 27 and following. Verse 27, Manasseh did not drive out the inhabitants. Verse 29, Ephraim, did not drive out the Canaanites. Verse 30, Zebulun did not drive out the inhabitants. Verse 31, Asher did not drive out the inhabitants. Verse 33, Naphtali did not drive out the inhabitants. Verse 34, the Amorites, they pressed the people of Dan backwards. Do you see a theme that's going on here? This is disobedience. They went into the land, they settled the land, but they did not completely drive the idolatry out as God had commanded. Why? Well, really a couple of reasons. One reason was due to fear, human fear. Chapter one, verse 19, you see an example where they go into the land and they're supposed to drive them out, but they see that the the enemy has iron chariots and they tremble. No, we'll never conquer those. You go, wait a minute, did you already forget what happened back in Egypt when Pharaoh and all his chariots came after? Was that too tough for God? No. God said, when you go into the land, I'm going to deliver you. You just got to obey me. Trust me. But fear settles in. Too much trust in their own human strength and resources that then brought distrust in God, and so they would not obey. But you're also going to see throughout Judges that for other tribes, it wasn't fear as much as it was convenience and apathy, meaning they found that it was actually easier to do some shortcutting. How about if instead of driving them out, we just enslave them? 
We copy and paste what happened to us in Egypt and we just keep them around, but we use them as a workforce. And then we can actually, we can, this will be economically beneficial to us. It'll be much easier. And so you see right here that, that in other words, completely obeying God is gonna be hard work. So let's just go halfway. It'll be easier and more convenient. In every case, no matter what the reason is, the people chose then rather to fully obey God to only partially obey God. And what you will see all throughout the book of Judges is that partial obedience is still disobedience. Partial obedience to God is still disobedience to God. And disobedience uh, to God's clear commands always leads to tragic consequences. So the first theme you'll see is disobedience. But there's a second theme that always comes with disobedience and that is compromise, and particularly syncretism. Syncretism is a blending in and co-mingling with the worship of other nations and their religions. It's the blending in, which is exactly what God told them what would happen if they didn't completely drive out the inhabitants, they would end up assimilating with them. And you see this, look at chapter two, verses 17. Chapter two, verse 17, yet they did not listen to their counsel, their judges. Instead, they whored after other gods and they bowed down to them. Literally translated, they played the harlot. They prostituted themselves. They prostituted God out and they went and joined themselves with somebody else in their worship. And so right here, they began to assimilate and syncretize their worship of God with the worship of false gods. And Psalm 106 actually captures the consequence of capitulation perfectly. What's what I love about the Psalms? They go hand in hand with the history books. You can see what was going on behind the scenes in the Psalms. And Psalm 106 describes this event when it says this, they did not destroy the peoples as the Lord commanded them, but they mingled with the nations and they learned their practices and they served their idols, which became a snare to them. They even sacrificed their sons and their own daughters to demons, which by the way, biblically speaking, any worship of anything else out there other than God is actually demonic. Even Paul says to the Corinthian church that even Satan himself goes around masquerading as an angel of light. There is only one true form of worship and that is to God Almighty. Anything less or anything other is actually paying homage to demons. And what they did is they shed innocent blood, the blood of their sons and their daughters. They end up adopting not only the beliefs of the Canaanites, they adopt the practices for how they worship. And you're going to see Israel joining into sexual intercourse for worship and prostitution. And then you are going to see them actually sacrifice their own children. In one week from tomorrow, I'm leading a team here from, uh, from Northway to Israel, and we're going to stand on sites such as Gezer, um, where Joshua made the sun stand still, and uh, as well as in Megiddo, and you're going to see giant altars that have been excavated. 
where they have found both Canaanite and Israelite bones from children that were put on the altars. This happened here in syncretism. Capitulation with idols always results in tragedy. Idols will promise you freedom, but they only lead you to re-enslavement. Only God is the one who can set you free. And you'll see this theme all throughout Judges. But there's a third theme. Not only disobedience, not only compromise and syncretism, but really a third one that I think is what contributes to the first two, which is a failed parental generational handoff. A failed generational handoff from the parents. And you see this. Look at chapter two, verse seven. Chapter two, verse seven tells us what life was like under the previous generation's leadership. Says, and the people serve the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who even outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. In other words, as long as the former generation was alive, those who knew God, those who walked with God, those who served God and worshiped God, as long as they were alive and as long as they were leading, the people served the Lord. But the moment they died, a massive breakdown happens. You see this in verse 10 of chapter two. And all that generation was then gathered to their fathers. They all died. And something happened. There arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. A whole nother generation rises up. And, and so, in other words, somewhere, somehow, between one generation who knew the Lord and the next generation who didn't, there was a baton that got dropped right there in the middle. Now, do me a favor. I want you to hold your place in Judges because I want you to see why this baton got dropped. Go to uh, hold Judges and flip to your left here to Deuteronomy or scroll to your right, whichever one. Go over to Deuteronomy chapter 6. This is a significant passage, probably the most significant passage in, um, in the Old Testament that contains the most significant command of the Old Testament that Jesus would even say is the number one command in the whole Bible. It's right here in Deuteronomy 6, and you're going to see three movements in this passage that play into what you're going to see in Judges. The first is the command, verses four and five of Deuteronomy 6. This is the command that was to govern all of Israel. Hear, O Israel. This passage is known as the Shema, which in Hebrew means hear. Listen, pay attention to this. Hear, O Israel. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. Meaning there isn't a plurality of gods. There is no such thing as Buddha and Muhammad and and, and uh, your, you being your own God or whatever it may be, and then Yahweh himself. There is only one God. And there has only always been one God. And the singular God, you are to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. In other words, the greatest command is that you know who God is and you worship him with everything that you are in totality. You lose this, you lose everything. You hold on to this, you have everything. 
Now, how does this command, which is to be binding for Israel at all times and all peoples for all times, how does this command get cultivated and nurtured and passed down from one generation to the next? So you make sure the next generation doesn't lose this command. Well, in verses six through nine, we see the pattern of God's design for how this formation of knowing who God is and worshiping him is to be cultivated. He says, these words that I command you today, this command, it needs to be on your heart. And you shall teach them diligently to your children. This is directed at parents. Parents, the way that we're gonna capture the next generation is through you. And the first thing is that this command has to be on your heart. You're never gonna be able to give away what you don't possess. You can't ask your kids to worship God if you don't worship God. This can't be something you profess with your mouth and you bow down with your lifestyle. This has to be holistic and not hypocritical. And it's gotta be modeled. And and you, it starts with you, but then you give it to your kids. And here's how you do that. You shall teach them diligently your children. And here's how you shall do it when you sit in your house. You're just lying around in your leisure time. And when you walk by the way, when you're on your way to work and knocking out errands, and, and, and when you lie down at night, when you go to bed and when you rise up, all these are metaphors for every part of your day is a teaching opportunity, is a modeling opportunity of who God is and how to worship him for your, your children. Every aspect is an aspect of discipleship. And not only that, this truth of knowing who God is and loving him, man, for you parents, this has got to be bound as a sign on your hands. That's a metaphor for what you're going to do in this life as frontlets between your eyes, how you're going to think about God shall be frontlets between uh, not only your eyes, but you're, you're to take this and you're to write it on the doorposts of your house. It's the entrance in your private life. It's to be on the city gates. That's the entrance into the public square. Every aspect of your day, every aspect of your life, every sphere and arena, there is no secular and sacred. Your work is just as important as your home and just as important as your hobbies. Every aspect is an opportunity to proclaim who God is and to worship him in totality and to teach your kids how to do the same. Why? And here's where you see Judges, verses 10 through 12. Because God says there is a day coming when I'm gonna bring you into a new land, the land that I swore to your fathers, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob to give you, a land with great and good cities that you actually didn't build and houses full of good things that you didn't fill, cisterns that you didn't dig, vineyards and olive trees that you didn't plant so that when you eat and when you are full, then take care. Why? Lest you forget, lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt and out of the house of slavery. In other words, you're about to go into that promised land. You're going to conquer it. You're going to go in. You're going to drive out those Canaanites and you're going to inherit their houses, their cisterns, all that. And they did. So that when that grace happens to you, when you are given what you didn't deserve, you won't ever forget the Lord. But what happened? Go back to the book of Judges. There arose a generation who didn't what? Who didn't know the Lord. There was a baton that God dropped in the generational handoff 
from one generation to the next. And so when I think about baton drops, I've shared this before. I mean, the classic illustration for me is the 2008 Olympics when we had built up the greatest men's four by 100 relay team and the greatest women's four by 100 relay team, we were going to kick some royal butt. We were going to put Jamaica down. You saying, come on, it is going to be America's time. We're coming in. These are arguably two of the best teams. You've got Tyson Gay, man, bringing this baby around. And what happens to both men's and women's team? After four years of training and prepping, and they are the finest specimens on earth to run this race, they botched the handoff. Both teams disqualified. Simply because you had one job was to not just run fast, but take this one thing you possessed and ensure it gets to the one coming after you so they can keep going and hand it to the next. And a baton gets dropped. And in the same way, it's what you see happen with Israel. They don't know who God is. They begin to disobey him and they assimilate and capitulate with the idols of the culture. Now, I say all that because what you'll then see is that those three issues, botched generational handoff, disobedient syncretism, will trigger a cycle in the book of Judges that just gets repeated over and over I'm going to throw up this pic from our friends at the, uh, the Bible Project, and you can just see a picture of this cycle. And this is what you're going to see on repeat throughout Judges. Starts with peace and prosperity in the land that God had given them, but that peace and prosperity leads to apathy and complacency. You get real comfortable being spoiled with all that you've been given and you don't show a heart of gratitude and you end up rebelling against God. And so the people move from prosperity and peace into complacency and sin. And they rebel against God. They join with the other nations. And so God judges them. And how he judges them is by allowing the cultures which they've assimilated with to oppress them once again. And when that oppression happens, the people cry out to God for deliverance. They beg for mercy and God is gracious and he sends them a deliverer. So the people repent and a deliverer comes. The deliverers in Judges uh, are judges. Don't think like courtroom judges with a gavel and a robe. Judges in the book of Judges are like military political leaders who are gonna come and they're gonna govern over Israel and they're going to make rulings, yes, but they're gonna drive out the oppressors. And God brings about deliverers. And then the people enter into peace and prosperity. And the cycle just repeats. But every time, the cycle gets worse. To where by the end of the book, they look no different than the Canaanites that they came to drive out. And so, the rest of the book is the unfolding of that cycle. In all, there's about 15 judges in the book of Judges. We're going to look at six of them this summer. Giving us a picture of God's faithfulness amidst an unfaithful people. But here's what I, I want to land a plane here in the last bit of time we have. I think those same three struggles that you see out of the gate in Judges are the same three things that are plaguing us, starting as a church and bleeding over into our culture. And so here's what it is. We walk through Judges. I want you to pay attention to those three things. I want you to first consider what does disobedience look like in our day right now? In the time of judges, 
disobedience wasn't always high-handed and explicit. Oftentimes, it is slow, it is subtle shortcuts that are made. And whether fueled by fear or apathy, we are going to see varied forms of partial obedience, which is still disobedience. God said to clean house completely, and they settled for just cleaning some of it. And if, if I'm honest, y'all, as I've done some introspection and in preparing for this series, I see the same tendencies in my own life and in my own heart. Judges is not just about these crazy people back in the day. It's the crazy person right here that's at any day capable of this. I think about how often I can be prone towards laziness spiritually, how often I can be prone towards taking the path of least resistance, my own shortcuts in my spiritual growth. I think about the value that I often have of prizing efficiency at the expense of effectiveness, meaning that I just I want to cut corners because I love streamlined and quick and less work as possible, but oftentimes it drives out meaningful effectiveness, even in the church. I think about me at so, many, so many times giving my leftovers to the Lord and not the first fruits. It is so easy to do. And if we're not careful as a church and as a culture, what begins to happen is we begin justifying sins, partial obedience as acceptable, where it's like, well, I'm not cheating on my spouse, but flirting's okay, right? Or I'm not into hardcore images of pornography, but you know what? I'm lingering a little bit on other people's Instagram profiles and their pictures, or man, I'm not seeking to take full-on vengeance against the people that I'm frustrated with right now, but I'm certainly withholding forgiveness and embracing bitterness. I'm not condoning sin, but I'm also not speaking up about it. Partial obedience is always disobedience. God wants lordship over every area of our lives, not just some of it. Biblically speaking, disobedient hands are always connected to a disconnected heart. Failing to love and worship God above all else. Jesus even said in Matthew 6, 21, where your treasure is, that's where we're gonna find your heart. Whatever it is you treasure the most is what you're truly worshiping. And wholehearted obedience to God only comes from having a heart that is wholly his. And in this series, I just wanna plead with us, myself included, let's do some serious introspection in this series on where the heart of our disobedience may lie or even partial obedience. Ask God to, to show us areas of both disobedience and partial obedience in our lives that we might actively seek to repent from those things and render back to God what is rightfully his and fullness of worship. And I think not only disobedience, we need to pay attention to compromise and syncretism in our day as well. When you think about the idolatry that was all around the people of God entering into the land and the pagan worship that existed around them, we too live in a very pluralistic society right now where there is a lot of false worship going on around us. Now, it may not always be in the form of statue deities made out of wood and stone, but in our culture, and especially in Dallas, they tend to take a different form. Materialism, greed, comfort, busyness, power, notoriety, pride and arrogance, false ideologies, 
All of them are lowercase g gods that we are prone to worship, that are being worshiped in the culture around us right now. And they are constantly beckoning to us not to drive them out, but to take residence with them and simply blend it in with our worship of God. And this slow and steady syncretism is killing Christ's church right now. And just as it did in the day of Judges, we are playing the harlot towards God, adopting worldly ideologies and practices of the world around us and justifying them with scripture, even sacrificing our own children by modeling and proclaiming and handing over these false ideologies and syncretistic blending of worship to the next generation. Jesus said in Matthew 6, 24, you cannot serve two masters for either you will hate the one and love the other or you'll be devoted to one, you'll despise the other. You can't worship two gods at the same time. It doesn't work that way. John said in 1 John 2, 15, do not love the world or the things of this world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Peter said in 1 Peter 2, 9, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, y'all. That's, that's in the text right there, y'all. A holy nation, a people for his own possession. Why? So that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And Paul most profoundly says to the Corinthian church in 2 Corinthians 6, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? What portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. We have been saved not to be enslaved again, but to be set apart, to be in the world, yes, but not of the world, to be wholly belonging to God, distinct and separate from the worship of false gods. And so let's pay attention to that theme and let's uproot that and repent there where needed. And then lastly, I would just simply say, let's give attention to failed generational handoffs. By and large, compared to generations past, far fewer of our present generation are claiming faith in Jesus Christ than any generation prior to us here in the West. Now, I know there's a lot of reasons for that, and there are some false mirages in generations past that are just being exposed now, but by and large, fewer people profess faith in Jesus today than in generations past. Recent study has found that Upwards of 1 million young people walk away from the faith each year. 50% of high school students who claim faith in Jesus right now will not be walking with Jesus in four years. And I feel it right now. I feel that tension. You know, I've got five daughters. We just graduated our first. So proud of you, Emma. So grateful for you. This has been a crazy emotional month. But man, nothing is more sobering at that high school graduation and then registering for college the next week outside of paying for it, nothing is more sobering <laughs> than going, Lord, have we done enough? Lord, have we made the right investments? Have, have these 18 years of discipling our daughter, have they given her legs to stand on that are her own? Nothing is more sobering than that baton being passed. And nothing will cause you to do more introspection and reflection on your life because in... 
We have to inspect what we expect. I can't demand of her what is not present in my own life. It makes me face my own hypocrisies so that I'm not proclaiming to her one thing that I'm not myself embracing. And so we, we have to feel this right now. We're experiencing right now a generational breakdown of the family of epic proportions in our country. Fewer people are marrying today. 40% of kids today lack either a mom or a dad in the home. That is compared to 11% in 1960. Most kids are growing up today with all kinds of settings, two-parent homes, one-parent home, no-parent home, grandparent home, step-parents, same-sex parents, aunts, uncles, the state raising the kids. We've got kids growing up in loving homes, negligent homes, latchkey homes, emotionally or spiritually disconnected homes. We've got abuse. We have a betrayal, abandonment, favoritism, you name it. And it's no surprise that has led to an entire generation who right now is experiencing tremendous amount of confusion. They have no North Star as to who they are. It's whatever the culture is pumping out right now. I'll take that. Maybe I'm that. And I'm seeing it in our daughter's schools. I'm seeing it in their friends everywhere. We are confused. And it has led to drifting. There's no tethering there. It is wanderlust of epic proportions, trying to figure out where to go next, what to do. There's no anchor. There's then disappointment because when you confront that world, all these unmet expectations, all these ideologies, all these ideal frameworks that you've had have now all been crushed. That leads to unresolved pain and woundedness in in our hearts that aren't being ministered to healthily right now. And you are seeing a whole sea of men and women who are either suppressing their pain or outraging expressing it, but not taking it to Jesus. And that leads to escapism because you just want to get out of this reality. And so it's either delayed adolescence or you're running to fantasy land and binge watching all these shows because I need to check out of the pain that I'm in right now because I don't know where the hope is from. And ultimately that will end in self-destruction. Highest rates of suicide and depression that have been recorded thus far. And somewhere along the way, a baton has been dropped And that is why at Northway Church, we want to do all that we can to capture the next generation for the Lord and not lose them. And we believe, as the scriptures tell us, that has got to start in the home. It has got to start in the family unit. And that is why we're going to do all we can to train parents and provide resources to make their home their primary spiritual investment. And where there are no spiritual deposits in the home, because there's many people coming from those type of homes, I'm one of them, then as a church, we got to step in as surrogate parents and we got to contribute to the formation of the next generation. And that is why here at Northway, we want to see mentoring take place. We want to see men and women plugged into gospel communities where spiritual formation can happen. We need new leaders, by the way, to lead that charge right now. Coming out of this pandemic, we are super short. A lot of groups have disbanded. We are super short. We have a new leader training this afternoon. If you're curious, you want to learn more, just show up and find about how you can contribute and help shaping the next generation of which we're in. We've got men's and women's Bible study where the foundations are being laid right now, biblical truth and worldview. We've got a next-gen ministry that wants to come alongside the families and help supplement and discipleship together. College students, as we've been enjoying a, a monthly gathering called Reclaim, where we can drive folks closer to Jesus and help understand the world that we are in right now and how to navigate it spiritually. 
Now, let me just tell you, if your own personal experience um, has been that of a dropped baton in your life, that may be your starting place, but I'm here to tell you in the good news of Jesus Christ, that does not have to be your ending place. And I am a prime example of that, of one who I saw the church step in and can shape my life and get a new trajectory and a North Star from the scripture in front of me, empowered by the Holy Spirit and other saints around me who helped walk with me to point me closer to Jesus and change the entire trajectory of my life. And I pray for my kid's life. This is multi-generational transformation that can take place. And while the darkness of Israel's day might seem like the darkness of our day as well, you need to know there is hope in the book of Judges that we're gonna be pointing to. There is good news that we are gonna experience in our study of the book of Judges. Judges right now is just priming the pump with all these flawed deliverers that we're gonna study. It's just priming the pump to point us to the true deliverer, Jesus Christ who is promised to come and rescue and redeem and restore a broken people and end the cycle. For any of us in here who have experienced a mess of our lives, either due to disobedience, compromise and syncretism, or just botched generational handoffs, the good news is that our deliverer has come. Jesus Christ, who has shed his blood on the cross for us, who has redeemed us from the power of sin, has given us forgiveness, who has given us the hope of eternal life and who has put the third member of the triune God, the Holy Spirit within his people to awaken us, to actually regenerate us from death to life, from darkness to light, who can take the old and make it new. This is what our God does. And it's what we're gonna be pointing to in here. And so whatever mess you have made, you need to know there is forgiveness and there is new life in the cross of Jesus Christ. And we are gonna point ourselves there. This book is meant to help us explore the brokenness of our own hearts, the faithfulness of our God to deliver us from the sin that we fall into and ultimately God's great provision of that promised king from Genesis three forward, who God was faithful to provide in Jesus Christ. Amen? That's our hope, y'all, and that's where we're heading. Let's pray. Lord, we just thank you for your word. Thank you for the truths that are constantly pouring out to us and calling out to us in, in your word. Thank you, God, for the hope of a deliverer. Even as we study these flawed deliverers and we see the brokenness of humanity that so resembles our own experiences, oh God, the hope of knowing that you have provided rescue. And to anyone in this room who is struggling right now, may they not leave this place today not knowing there is hope in Jesus Christ. And so God... Would you accomplish your purposes through the study? Draw us closer to you. In the name of Jesus, our Lord, we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Northway Church. A podcast should never replace gathering with God's people to worship Jesus Christ. So we want to encourage you to be part of a local church family. We meet every Sunday at 9 a.m., 11.15 a.m., and 4 p.m. And would love for you to join us as we encounter the truth, beauty, and goodness of Jesus.